Welcome to Tuesday Morning Ryan, episode number 15, where we talk to entrepreneurs, security experts, privacy experts, and just people who are generally rock stars in their career. And today we have Philip Brudney. Philip, who's a fellow in information privacy with the IAPP. He's also a director of privacy here at Risk360. And we're going to talk about GDPR. What does GDPR compliance look like and what does GDPR compliance not look like? Welcome, Phil. Happy to have you. Excited. This is a fun you conversation bet. for me. I'm one of those guys. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think at, at a high level, a lot's going on when it comes to privacy. Um, for companies, they're probably primarily concerned with how do I comply with you know, different requirements and continue to operate my business. Philosophically, I think privacy is bubbling up to the forefront of the consciousness of individuals. And we're thinking about it when we download apps or when we give our data to companies. And probably the most mature of the privacy regulations today is, is GDPR. And it's probably also the regulation with the most teeth and that most people have heard of. So I thought today, one thing that we could do is we could talk about 10, 10 tips a combination of how to become compliant and also just myths we've seen over the last couple of years that people really think that is GDPR compliance. And uh, I think where I wanted to start, myth number one or tip number one, is this idea that GDPR is all about policies or more annoying to me that GDPR is about cookie consent on, mm -hmm. on the front of your website. So can you talk about that? To what extent is that true? To what extent is that not true? Is there a lot of risk there? Do people need to be updating their websites immediately? What does this all mean? Well, so start with the first part around the policies related to GDPR. Of course, you need policies for your program, but GDPR is really about protecting the rights and freedoms of data subjects, which you're not going to get just through policy it's about making a living and breathing privacy program that keeps the consumer's best interests in mind. Um, beyond that, the cookie consent, of course, it gets a lot of attention. It's an easy way to put something on the website, give maybe give consumers a little confidence when they see it that this is a company that knows what it's doing when it comes to privacy. but. Are cookies really the high-risk item for most businesses out there? And in my opinion, the answer is no. They're, it's really the core of your service, the core of the data you're collecting and how you're using that is affecting consumers and how they interact with your uh, products and services. So there, there's much yeah. more that goes beyond that. I mean, the cookie consent thing and the policy thing, to, honestly, it kind of drives me crazy because I feel like every consultant and person who knows anything about privacy is kind of pitching this cookie consent thing. The right. first thing a lot of our customers ask is about policies for their website and cookie consent for their website. But if you think about it big picture, like us as consumers, as individuals who own data and might be providing it to customers, mm -hmm. you know, whether or not a cookie is tracking me on a public facing website is not that important to me, you know? Yeah. Um, whether or not they have a privacy policy that I have to read and maybe I'll understand it and maybe I will not is not that important to me. The, the stuff that really matters is mm -hmm. if I'm getting a lending decision with a customer and they're using automation to tell me if I'm going to get a loan or not, that matters to me. Yep. If they're serving me ads or Facebook's going to uh, impact my news feed or you know, sell my data to a third party without me knowing about it, that's the stuff that matters, but that takes... Mm -hmm. 
I think, a deeper, another level of thinking when it comes to privacy and risk. Like, what is yeah. really risky to that end, end user? And uh, it bothers me. I, I don't know why this is such a popular thing to talk about websites and cookies. Maybe it's because it's so front and center. But I think everybody's tired of <laughs> clicking, yeah. yes, you can have my cookies. Just let me access your website, please. I'll give you anything. Yeah, yeah and co cookies have long been something that a user already has a fair bit of control over just through the browser they use and the settings within that browser. So, yep. so again, like you said, it's really what what come what goes in and what comes out of the service that determines your actual risk profile. Yep. And, that, and that's a good segue into like the stuff that really matters, which is tip number 2 is thinking about GDPR applicability. So, not every organization is going to tackle GDPR the same way. It's not a compliance check the box where there's 100 requirements and you have to meet them all. It is likely that not every product and service that you provide to a customer is going to be treated the same way. And that's why we treat GDPR projects uh, to start off with by performing an applicability assessment. Mm -hmm. What is GDPR? How is it applied to your organization? How is it a revenue driver for you? Which products does it matter? Which ones does it not matter? Which do you have actually enough risk that you need to take some significant action to, to handle? What do your customers care about mm -hmm. for that matter that will drive you to take on GDPR compliance? So can you talk a little bit about that? When you're thinking about GDPR applicability, what are some of the things that you should be looking at to, to take into consideration taking on a GDPR compliance uh, program? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a few things that go into it. One, one of the things that I really find interesting or that maybe irritates me about how companies approach GDPR is thinking that all, all their data has the same value. So I always say my business information, my business email address, anyone can pretty much guess it's one of about three formats for my business email address it's really not that hard to figure out so I think that information in the business context is definitely lower risk um, so you look at data that's actually personal you know the GDPR has this concept of sensitive information under article 9 and that really it focuses on what's really personal union membership sexual orientation health data um, religious and political beliefs so that's something that's clearly high risk um, and beyond that your just the volume of data that actually goes into each of your product and service offerings that's going to be generally a pretty good indicator of your risk level the more personal data you're collecting, the more opportunities there are for data sets to get linked, for inferences to be drawn, and that's where you really get into uh, some privacy concerns. So th those are yep. a couple easy considerations as far as where your GDPR risk might be. Yeah, I mean, I think about it in terms of, it's, it's kind of logical. If you take away the compliance part of it and you, you think of your own organization, you have a lot of products, you have a lot of services, you have back office. There's a lot of places the data comes in. So let's take a, a financial organization. Maybe you have a, a sales platform that you're using to send email and letters to to get people to, to take out a mortgage. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Well, there's some risk associated with that. And I need to perhaps consider GDPR compliance there. Then your other system is maybe automating lending decisions and underwriting and whether or not you're going to provide someone a mortgage and at what rate mm. and what do they qualify for and can they purchase a home well to me that's naturally much more important just on the face of it so the way that i might want to approach the sales data versus the way i want to approach my key platform that makes lending decisions i think it's natural to understand that those would be treated differently and and different levels of applicability under gdpr and I like that. I like any regulation that you can intuit the solution. <laughs> and GDPR does a pretty good job of that, where you would expect that those would be treated differently. And they, in fact, are. And where a lot of organizations, I think, fall short is they try to treat an entire organization similarly without any unique strategy points or applicability assessments. And what we would advise is look at every piece of your business, your HR systems, the products and services that you provide, your sales system, and make a determination unique to each of them about how you want to approach GDPR mm -hmm. because it's not a one size fits all and you don't want to you know you don't want to spend a million dollars for something that's a hundred dollars worth of risk you right. want to treat the million dollar risk with the million dollar problem and solution so think about that as you go through applicability assessment um, tip number three and and I think a lot of people are familiar with this at this point but there's uh, GDPR has introduced this concept of a controller and a processor. Mm -hmm. um, I want you to define those, and then I want to dive into why those are important because they are they have unique requirements under GDPR. Whether you're a controller and processor, so what what is a controller? What is a processor, Phil? Sure. So the controller is the entity that determines the ways and means of processing of personal information. So. This definition can get a little confusing, um, especially with the SAS universe out there. You think, if I send my data off, if I as a business send my data off to a SAS platform, they're, I don't know how they're processing it. They're, they're determining the means of processing. Well, GDPR is saying that when you choose that SAS platform, you're choosing the ways and means of processing. Um, along with that, you're you're setting the purpose and lawful basis for processing. You're determining retention period. So it, it's part of a logical exercise to determine who's really um, in control of the collection of this data and the management of it. And so the processor would be the, the party that's contractually engaged um, by the controller and performs certain defined functions. So the controller tells the processor exactly what it's engaged to do, and the processor can only um, process data for that purpose. Uh, so, so the processor yeah. is limited to a very specific role under GDPR. I, I, I love GDPR for this concept, because I think that once you read it, it's obvious, but it's never been formally articulated in a piece of legislation before. And GDPR I, has correctly identified the fact that there's relationships when it comes to data. There's the data subject, like me and you, mm -hmm. our data. There is someone that we freely provide the data to. I like to use the bank as an example. You know, we're gonna give our data to the bank so they can make lending decisions. We know why we're giving it to them. And then there's the 
all the universe of SaaS platforms and cloud service providers that the bank in turn gives our data to. And we have no control over that functionally. We don't know what they're doing with it. We don't have any skin in the game and in the outcome of how they use that data. So the bank being a controller has to define the instructions. So the bank says, hey, SaaS provider, here are the five ways you're allowed to use this data. And you can't go above and beyond that or you're in jeopardy. And by the way, I'm going to do various diligence activities against you to make sure you're living up to that standard. And that's a cool concept because business process outsourcing with all these SaaS providers is, is the new normal. And we can't control that as data subjects. And GDPR is the first regulation to identify those relationships. And to me, that's revolutionary. And now you're thinking about fourth providers because you got the bank who provides it to SaaS provider, who provides it to AWS, who provides it to whoever else. So there's, there's these huge amount of relationships and us poor data subject really has no say or very little say in how that's used. So we have to rely on our business partners and the folks that we're providing that data to do something about it. So that's an important concept, I think philosophically when it comes to privacy, but also when it comes to your GDPR compliance posture. Because if you're an organization, you, you could be a controller, you could be a processor, you could be a sub-processor, or you might be all of those in different circumstances. And you need to identify when you're each and what that means to you. Because controller, for example, has like a DPO requirement, a data protection officer requirement, and some other mm -hmm. things. Subprocessors and processors have un unique responsibilities too. And you need to understand what universe you're operating in so you can ultimately be GDPR compliant. Mm -hmm. Phil, do you know offhand, like what are some of the, uh, I know you do, you can rattle these off. Like if you're a controller, what, what are some of the unique requirements for a controller? Um, I think the, the biggest ones are really uh, defining the purpose and lawful basis for processing that's the baseline for your privacy compliance overall is understanding what data you're taking in why you're processing it mm -hmm. GDPR goes further it says you have to have a lawful basis before you can perform any processing so lawful basis um, the two you probably hear most often are legitimate interest and consent also have processing under a, a contract and then some more um, pretty narrowly defined ones so that's a base obligation of the controller the controller is really um, primarily responsible for privacy by design and by default um, but this is one I think we've seen um, with a lot of our clients that are acting as processor only they're concerned about privacy by design and by default because as a processor, you still want to um, have systems that enable your customers to um, your customers who are controllers to implement privacy by design and by default. So yep. they can't be they can't be you know, privacy privacy forward if you're not. So yeah. we, we see a lot of processors that have started to really look at privacy by design and by default. Um, Great. Yeah. So we talked about the controller. We talked about the processor. Might be unique requirements based on controller or processor to meet GDPR requirements. <clears throat> Tip four, there's also this thing called a sub-processor. Mm -hmm. And I like the sub-processor concept because a lot of our clients fall in that bucket and you might not even realize that you do because you're a US-based US company and 
you know, maybe you do some business with the EU, but you don't have any EU employees, but suddenly GDPR is applicable to you. So it's an important concept to think through. So what is a subprocessor? Who might be a subprocessor, Phil? Yeah, so a subprocessor is the next level down the chain. So the controller who originally determined that some data needs to be collected or processed uh, has engaged various subprocessors uh, who are excuse me, they've engaged processors who are going to be involved in the processing and then the processor also has the parties that support it those are the subprocessors um, yep. I think an so. easy example of a subprocessor might be like data cleansers, mm -hmm. you know you, your bank, you send your uh, data out for underwriting in some format, they provide it to some automated system that cleanses the data and manipulates it and pulls back results where well, Mr. Bank, you know, there's three parties here now, all of a sudden, four if you include the data subject. And there's a lot of niche SaaS providers out there that are doing various services that make them qualify as a subprocessor. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of stuff, Phil, like if I'm a subprocessor, because a lot of SaaS providers are, um, what, based on your experience, like how, how does this manifest itself? Like how does GDPR impact them? Are there things, like do they have to be GDPR compliant to, to get business? How is this impacting them as a firm? Yeah, uh, so privacy requirements, it's where uh, it's getting to where security requirements have gone. So you start to see re requirements just flow down the chain. So it starts, I think, like Microsoft was one company that really got behind um, the standard ISO 27701 immediately, and they said they they're going to want their sub their processors to be um, ISO 27701 compliant. So you see it flowing down the chain that way, which really is also required under GDPR. It says any processor you engage with should be subject to uh, similar privacy requirements as you are. Mm -hmm. So it it is flowing down the chain. You see a lot of requirements to sign what are known as data protection addendums or DPAs, which are yep. really binding you to these core um, privacy concepts for processors. So really, um, e even if you are a subprocessor, you're not being seen any differently under GDPR from just any level of processor. Uh, you, you're yep. still going to have those requirements flowing down to you. Yep. If I'm a business owner and I own a SaaS organization, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, do I care about GDPR? Is there really enough skin in this thing for me to focus on it? Uh, the answer is typically, yeah, when a contract comes down. Mm -hmm. And that's where the subprocessors get hit, right? Because you get these things called a DPA or a data protection agreement. You get some contractual terms that say, hey, by the way, you have to be GDPR compliant. There are these things called standard contractual clauses that are getting hit. And all of a sudden, all the SaaS providers are saying, hey, I have to have a GDPR story here because my customers are saying they can't do business unless I do and I need to understand my exposure and all of a sudden you know Facebook they care Google cares ba banks care well guess what their processors care because the bank cares and now it just keeps flowing downstream now the sub processors care because their customers care now we're in this universe where you know because of GDPR almost everyone cares about privacy and needs to have a story because the revenue is on the line and that's where you have to figure that's this right. stuff out. Um, I want to talk about a DPO. 
because that's a question that comes up. So tip number five, what is a DPO? The, the way I've seen this come up a bunch is organizations know that they need a privacy story. They have a feeling that they need someone who's in charge of privacy and they're calling that the DPO, perhaps misunderstanding the intent behind the DPO. And GDPR requires that controllers have a DPO. So can you talk about what is a DPO in, in, in the lens of GDPR? Like what is the, the regulatory requirement for a DPO and what is that? Yeah, GDPR uh, calls out this position of a data protection officer. And it, as you said, it's a controller that's actually required to have a DPO. And that's if the controller has you know, regular and systematic monitoring of EU data subjects on a large scale. So it it's looking at probably some specific um, use cases there where a company really needs a data protection officer. Um, it also calls out the tasks of the data protection officer, so privacy awareness and education within the organization, uh, working with management on issues around privacy, reporting to the top level of management. Um, so that that's the background behind what GDPR yeah. calls for around a DPO. I think, it, again, this is another, in my mind, revolutionary con concept when you think about privacy. Because I think the mistake a lot of organizations make is thinking of the DPO as the chief privacy officer or just a compliance officer in general, which sometimes they are the same, but often not. But when GDPR talks about a data protection officer, this is the person that's supposed to lobby on behalf of the data subject. So they need to have some independence. So if you think about this whole ecosystem, if you're a company, you don't have naturally a lot of incentive to protect someone's interest when it comes to harvesting their data, especially if you're monetizing it. You largely want to gather as much as you can to make a good business decision. And naturally what happens is sometimes poor decisions are made inadvertently, even with the best intentions, and you gather someone's data and you violate their privacy. But there's not an independent party at the organization to think through, should we have done that? And GDPR recognizes that fact and says, hey, we need an independent party at the organization who's thinking through the best interest of that data subject and helping lobby on behalf of them so that when tough decisions or new products or new features come to the fore, someone's saying, hey, look, we shouldn't do that, and here's why. And that's the position of the DPO largely. And I think that's a very interesting concept. I'm not sure how that's going to play out in practice because, I mean, the DPO rarely has the clout in the organization to stop a product decision in yeah. practice. Like I, I've seen some that do, I've seen some that do not, but you have to have like a pretty high ranking person in the organization to put the brakes on a really good idea that's very valuable. Um, but I have seen it be successful in places where at least they can provide a tweak in thinking. Mm -hmm. Hey, do we really need GPS data? Maybe not. I mean, we can do the same great product without that. And they're like, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't collect that. So that's where there's some value. That brings me to number six, the privacy impact assessment. So we, we hear a lot about risk assessments. We hear a lot about privacy assessments or gap assessments. But GDPR introduced this idea of a PIA, a privacy impact assessment. It's another one of these terms that has a specific meaning. Can you talk about a PIA, Phil? What is that? Mm -hmm. Who should be doing it? Yeah, so GDPR 
again the specific statutory requirement is um, a bit less than what companies should be doing in in my opinion in our opinion so GDPR calls out the need for the PIA under um, specific circumstances similar to when a DPO is required so large-scale um, large-scale monitoring um, a lot of a lot of data um, data collection and processing going on um, and that that can be kind of misleading for companies because um, we've seen that really the privacy impact assessment is something that should be performed often it should be integrated directly into a company's SDLC um, so whenever they're making changes to their product at least start out with this idea of a privacy gate where they look at does this change affect privacy does it affect how we're processing the data that we've collected are we collecting new data if it does look at doing a privacy impact assessment so what is it the privacy impact assessment is where you actually look at how the processing you're doing how the vendors are using uh, with respect to this particular product or service affect the rights and freedoms of data subjects. So a simple way to think of it is what harm could possibly come to a data subject from this processing, from using this vendor. Um, yeah. So da Daniel Salav out of um, George Washington University, he's putting together the uh, definitive list of privacy harms, which are just a fantastic way to think about really what are all the ways that this affects privacy. It's not just about a, a loss of the data, it's about disclosure of the data, um, really affects on your freedoms. You talk about a lending decision, so if, if data is processed improperly in a lending decision, that is a direct effect on your rights and freedoms as an individual. It, it truly affects your life, your your family, your livelihood. Um, yep. So go, going think, all the way. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say like an easy way to conceptualize this for me is pretend you're a product owner for um, an apartment complex and you guys have built an application to intake leasing forms. On day one, the day one you were just trying to get out of a word document or a paper document so you made a form that people could fill out and submit a leasing application it was easy as that a human received it via email and they reviewed it well you know five years later you got the great idea hey look we should be taking into consideration all of these different fields and then pulling in some data from the credit union to filter out if we're going to be able to lease an apartment to this person automatically so we're only getting the best the best applicants and we don't have to have a human to intervene otherwise well that'd be a really good opportunity to have your data protection officer do a privacy impact assessment mm -hmm. because what you would take and say hey look these new features that we're developing are going to directly impact the data subjects and if we get it wrong if we pull in bad data and make a bad leasing decision because we messed up on the engineering side well that's going to impact their rights and freedoms right so that's where it comes down, especially for big organizations that you have tons of products, rapid R&D, a lot of feature development, is thinking about how you can build in privacy impact assessments along the way of that development life cycle 
So if someone gets the bright idea to do something like that, which may in fact be a great product idea, then it is at least evaluated in terms of how it's going to impact the data subject and what you want to do or what the left and right limits are, how are you going to document that, what's the appropriate lawful basis of collecting that data, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff to think through. And that is what a privacy impact assessment is and when a, where a DPO needs to be plugged in. From a GDPR perspective, definitely, but I think this is arguably a great privacy practice anyway if you're trying to build a forward, forward leaning ahead of the curve kind of privacy program. Mm -hmm. Brings us to the governance structure. So one problem that we have run into, tip number seven, is most organizations do not have privacy stationed in a place in the organization where they have a say or can make decisions. You know, it's like an analyst that does privacy. There's often not someone at the executive level who's familiar enough with privacy, who cares or understands the concepts well enough to make decisions. And we've talked about establishing an ODPO or an information risk council or something similar. Can you talk about that? What is, for a SaaS company or a you know, high growth tech company, what's a good org structure to put in place to manage privacy? Yeah, so the idea behind establishing a body to handle privacy is really about visibility across the organization into uh, what data you have and how it's being used. Um, so it's typically be headed by someone who's serving in the data protection officer role. Often it comes from legal, but to support mm -hmm. them, they're getting input from the marketing organization, product organization, of course, um, information security. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you could have human resources, um, finance, all of those people who really have insight into what's changing at the organization, what what are new uses for personal data, um, what's happening to the product, where are we taking this over the next couple of years, so that you really have that full base of input to look at uh, how you're managing privacy. Yep, to, to your point, it's often like a pretty diverse set of individuals that have the appropriate information to make a decision around privacy. But the problem is everybody's busy. Like you, if you, when we walk into a high growth tech company that's 100 to 500 people and they're growing products as fast as they can, they're spending money because they've had a few seed rounds, it's, it's a big ask mm -hmm. to say, hey, chief information security officer or hey, general counsel, put down what you're doing in terms of security and in terms of reviewing contracts and org structure and think about privacy. That's a very big ask. Mm -hmm. And the way that we've worked around that that I think is actually the right thing to do when it comes to for business, but also practically it, it fits well into an organization's strategy, is the Information Risk Council. Because that's the governing body that, that makes decisions, that approves policy. To your point, you get all the right people in the room so there's enough information sharing so they can make a good decision. Mm -hmm. And the best part is that fits great into a strategy of achieving something like a certification. There's a defensible approach, so if you do get sued, you can say, look, our top management was on top of this. Here's the meeting minutes from that. And uh, best of all, it's a great use of time. You know, those meetings can be an hour, mm -hmm. once a quarter. And if you have a good team rolling information up to you, you can make a lot of great decisions quickly. And when it comes to that balance of meeting compliance requirements and also being agile and fast and scalable and all that, I think the IRC and the ODPO are great 
organizational bodies to put in place to, to fulfill those functions. So highly recommended. Yeah. Tip number eight, I want to talk about right to be forgotten. Because if there's one topic that I hear IT professionals um, dread, it is, well, what happens, there's this myth, you know, Christian Hyatt sends an email to my organization and says, I want to be forgotten, delete all of my data. The first thing that goes into the IT person's mind or the engineer's mind is, I don't even know where all that person's data is. How am I going to go about actually deleting <laughs> that? Valid and, this all, and this all stems from a clause, I think, in GDPR that, that says, you know, individuals have that right to be forgotten. But, but there's some out clauses there, too. So, Phil, can you talk about that? Like, how are we advising organizations on that? Do I really have to delete their data? And in what cases do I not have to delete it? Can you shed some light on some of that? Sure. So, yeah, the, the right to be forgotten, it really primarily applies when you're collecting data based on the user's consent. Um, so, as, as I mentioned earlier, consent is one of the six lawful bases for processing. So, so meaning I go to a website, it says, hey, can I collect your data? And I'm like, sure, go right ahead. And I yeah. literally consent. It's typically like a button in a website. So that's one, one of many ways that mm -hmm. a company can be authorized to collect data. So if I do that, I also have the right to say I don't want you, I want to take away my consent, right? Yep. So, and that really gets into a broader conversation on when consent is your appropriate lawful basis. Um, that that's for another day but if you're if you're relying on say performance of a contract to process someone's personal data well then it makes a lot of sense if you're if you need this data because you've signed a contract with the person then you can't just delete their data in the middle of the contract you know if if i um if i were working at one of our clients and i I was the billing contact, and I and I said, "Forget me. Don't don't email me anymore. Uh, I don't think Risk 360 would be very happy with me." Um, so, so no, that that's one example where you don't have to go through with the right to be forgotten. Um, similarly, if you're relying on what's called your legitimate interest, uh, you have a a different. Um, scenario if a user has a concern with how their data is being processed it's what's called the uh, legitimate interest balancing test so you have to prove that your interest in that data is greater than the potential harm to the rights and freedoms of the data subject but mm -hmm. if you've done the privacy impact assessment if you've thought ahead and documented it well then you you don't actually have to go through with the right to be forgotten if the user yep. raises an objection. So. This is one of those crazy things where I've seen organizations consider implementing a million dollar solution mm -hmm. to effectively delete, to erase data, but they haven't even done the analysis to see if they're lawfully required to do that. Or if you might even hurt someone worse by deleting it than keeping it. An example might be a large bank says, well, we have to have a, a way to do erasure of data when in fact, maybe that person's loan application's in progress and they don't understand the impact of saying, I want you to delete. Well, I can't, I very well can't delete it because you have, have mortgage documents with you. There's stuff I have a legitimate interest and you data subject have an interest in me maintaining this data. I can't just delete it. So if I'm a bank, well, maybe if I did the PIA and I did an analysis, I'd say, hold on, I don't even need a tool 
to delete delete all of this data because in most situations I have authorization and a legitimate interest to collect that data. So this is an important, this is to me one of the most important concepts of avoiding incidental compliance activity because you don't understand the requirement. So that's one of the biggest pieces of value that we try to add to organizations is how do you do a PIA? How do you do it where it's integrated but low impact? How do you change your org structure where it's low impact, like with the IRC? And then do you really have to delete all that data? Because that's like the thing that wakes these IT guys up in the middle of the night because they think they're yep. going to have to come up with some solution to respond to every email that comes through. But a very important piece. So tip number nine, I want to talk about automated decision making. Because to me, this is one of those lesser known items of importance, but probably one of the most high risk privacy elements. And a lot of organizations are doing automated decision making, but they're not considering that deeply as part of their privacy impact assessments or as part of their overall GDPR program. So can you talk about where does GDPR um, reference automated decision making? And let's talk about some examples of where we've seen this in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so GDPR, I, putting me on the spot, I believe it's Article 22, talks about automated decision making. And um, what it specifically says is that a data subject shall have the right to not be subject to a fully automated decision, um, and that would be that would be a um, decision producing um, legal effects on him or her. So you have, say, your recommendation engine on Amazon or Netflix, and that's automated decision making, but it's not producing a legal effect on you. It, it doesn't say you you have to watch what we tell you to watch next, for example. Um, yeah. yeah, an example we keep coming back to would be uh, credit decisions. That's a huge area of automated decision making. So GDPR would say if your decision is 100% automated, then the data subject has the right to appeal if you don't already have a um, a human review built into it. Human review is what um, is what they require if the data subject objects to the results of that decision. Yep, I think this is an interesting area because with with uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, like some of these concepts come to fruition and becoming actionable. Like they're used to, they were buzzwords, but they're actually starting to be stuff that's driving automated decision making. That that are interesting. So if you think about uh, social media, let's take a controversial topic like banning of content. Mm-hmm. Well, that's theoretically uh, impacting people's livelihood because maybe their paychecks based on generating that content and serving ads. So like YouTube was um, banning channels or demonetizing channels. I think that's largely automated. So they have to, for example, start thinking about, mm-hmm. okay, what am I going to do to implement a manual review process? Because pretty much everybody who's demonetized is going to dispute that fact. And if I have millions of those, what does yeah. that look like? So that's that's a big problem they have to solve in terms of GDPR. Credit uh, credit is a big one. We've talked about that a ton. Uh, le- leasing decisions. So do I qualify for housing? Um, I think government has to worry about this. So do I qualify for social programs? Um, that could be an automated type thing. And and that this is going to be an interesting phenomenon as companies build business models that are... Um, staffed in a way that is 
largely automated and they don't have the individuals to perform thousands or millions of manual reviews that are disputed. So, so how, this is big to me, how do you adjust your business model to compensate for that? Because I've built a very scalable, low human driven process, probably priced it accordingly under the theory I don't have to pay a lot of salaries, then all of a sudden I get thousands or millions of disputes. So if, if that's, we have clients that are kind of in that situation. So where, where does, who owns that and how do you manage that? More interestingly, it's typically not the bank making that automated decision making. They've outsourced that to a, a processor or a sub-processor. So how does the bank interact, interact with their third party vendors who are doing this interesting stuff? Then you have to think through, do I as a bank have to dispute that? Do I have to hold my sub-processor accountable for that? And it opens up a whole can of worms in terms of who needs to do what, how do I adjust my business model? I don't think that this has become popular yet. A, because it's like a, a small piece of GDPR, just not a lot of focus, but B, I think as machine learning and AI becomes a bigger and bigger topic, we're gonna wake up in 2022 and all of a sudden every SaaS company in the country wants to talk about automated decision-making. So I'm, I'm very interested to see where this goes and how to adjust models. Yeah, um, it's a huge factor for the future. I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tip number 10. So by far and away, the most common question is how do I get GDPR certified? And uh, so talk, tell me, Phil, how do I get <laughs> GDPR certified? Is there such a thing? Uh, today, there is not. Uh, so GDPR has a lot of built-in language around a potential GDPR certification. Uh, nothing has come out yet. Uh, however, uh, ISO 27701 is really the first global privacy standard um, that you can actually certify to. We've seen a, a lot of companies look at that as um, very similar to GDPR. Uh, I certainly think it's very, very close, uh, certainly in any material respect. Um, so uh, 27701 we're really seeing as gaining popularity as a way to yep. evidence where you've gone with GDPR compliance. Um, we, we've talked about it on several other podcasts, but uh, to me it has huge additional benefits. Um, the idea of the management system goes beyond what GDPR would require, but shows that you have um, that ODPO or IRC uh, that's actually managing privacy, continually improving it, um, yep. so go, going beyond the basic requirements. Pri privacy doesn't happen in a silo. Typically, if you need to be GDPR compliant and you're in the United States, you also need to be CCPA compliant. You also need to be compliant with the New York privacy regulations and every other state and region and territory that has their own flavor of privacy. And that can be frustrating because you start playing privacy whack-a-mole. I just gotta be compliant with this, this, and this, and I end up being compliant with nothing in reality. Whereas I think the unique opportunity for 27701 is that's, that's like a single framework that gives you the infrastructure you need to comply with a whole lot of stuff mm -hmm. in a way that actually adds value to the organization. So if you haven't studied up on that framework yet, we have a YouTube video out there. It's the ISO 27701 basics. Highly recommend that. We have some white papers and stuff too. Um, definitely go download those and check that cert out. It's getting a lot of traction in the marketplace and uh, adds a lot of value.
So Phil, thank you. Those are our 10. Um, appreciate your time lending your expertise. If you're out there and you like this kind of information, want to point people to a few different places. One, we post everything on YouTube. So consider subscribing to our YouTube channel. We have different playlists within the YouTube channel. So if you want to learn about privacy, there's a privacy playlist, security, there's different security playlists. This is Tuesday Morning Grind. We have a whole playlist there that you can subscribe to and watch our great videos there. Also podcasts, if you like to listen to it rather than watch, you can do it on Apple or Android or any of the other mini uh, podcast apps. And then also LinkedIn, we try to keep stuff updated there. So if you like this stuff, we try to produce it for free. We'd appreciate you guys subscribing and giving us any feedback. So thanks again, Phil, and thanks for watching. Thanks, Christian.